Um, Well, this is the last Sunday of a five-week sermon series called Here We Stand, and we're going through the five solas, uh, or or the five alones of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, And next Sunday, we begin the season of Advent, where we celebrate that Christ came for us and for our salvation. We also kind of feel the tension of of waiting for him to return and to inaugurate uh, and fulfill uh, all of the promises that uh, we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and Scripture. Uh, but for the last five Sundays, we've looked at the five solas. We started with looking at Scripture alone, uh, where we saw that uh, the Scriptures are uh, the only final authority that we have as God's people, and they're perfectly true and clear and sufficient for us as God's people. Then we looked at uh, next the, the glory of God alone where we saw that, that we are created and redeemed for God's glory, to live for His glory alone. And then uh, we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, where we saw the wonderful Reformation truth, that we are saved by God's grace alone. Uh, and, 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 and we saw that we're justified and counted righteous by God's grace alone. And then next we saw uh, the wonderful Reformation truth of, of faith alone, that we are reconciled to God and justified before God through our faith alone, and that Christ's righteousness is counted toward us through faith. And now on this very last Sunday of the series, uh, we're looking at the declaration that salvation comes to us in Christ and in Christ alone. And we're going to do that by digging into 2 Timothy uh, or 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. So if you would open your Bibles, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy, for this is God speaking to us. Therefore, this, these words come with all the authority of God to us this morning. This is God's voice to us, and this is what the Spirit says to you, church. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we need you this morning. We ask that as we look into your word, that you would pour out your spirit upon us and open our eyes to see Jesus revealed, to hear Christ's voice, and to be transformed by him, by beholding him. We ask, Lord, that that he would be the center in the sum of all that we talk about this morning. Lord, would you make much of Jesus? Would Jesus be big through the words of my mouth and, and in our hearts? And to that end, we ask that the words of my mouth 
and all the meditations of our heart to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Now, every organization exists for a particular end and purpose. They have to have something to offer. Uh, they need to meet a particular need or, or fulfill a particular role that no one else fulfills. And now churches uh, have very little to offer the world that it doesn't have already, uh, actually. Uh, there are businesses, there are organizations, there are institu- institutions that meet almost every human desire or human need, uh, at least to some extent, if only superficially, which is often enough for most people. Uh, if you're looking for good music or a gifted therapist, if you're looking for help with an addiction, if you're looking for good resources on a happy marriage or, or uh, successful parenting, if you're looking for motivational talks or a charity with which to uh, volunteer, you can find all of those things outside of the church. And so the question remains, what, what sets the church apart? What is its purpose, its end, its, its reason for existing? Uh, what, what need and desire can the church alone fulfill. If we don't know this, we're left floundering and fretting and and fidgeting. We're left with visions that pursue little more than cultural relevancy or meeting consumers' needs or providing religious activity and motivational pep talks. But in all reality, none of that will enliven and renew the church because the church doesn't exist for those ends. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ alone is the reason for the church's existence. The church, unlike any other institution, exists to declare and offer the good news of Jesus Christ come and crucified for our salvation, raised for our justification, present with us in his word and at his table. He is the foundation of the church, the head of the church, the king of the church. He is the hope of the church. He is the message of the church. He is that which we declare to exist, or he is that which we exist to declare. Now, the medieval church at the time of the Reformation had totally forgotten and betrayed this high call. They had sold this this birthright for a cup of of the soup of man-made, self-saving, self-meriting religion. Christ helped with salvation, uh, but you also need the sacramental system and to purchase indulgences and, and to venerate relics. And this still continues to this day. The Reformation is not over in this regard. Just last month, there was an article published on October 18 about how there's a vial of Pope John Paul II's blood making its way around the country. And it made its way to this particular cathedral in St. Joseph, Missouri. And in the, in the article, there's a photo of a woman touching the vial, and it includes a quote from her saying that she felt a great sense of peace when she touched it. These these same practices, the same self-saving, merit-earning religion that we've been talking about, undermining Christ's sufficiency continues to this day. They they do not believe and do not confess that Christ and Christ alone is needed for salvation. They do not believe that Christ is sufficient for our salvation. They do not believe that Christ is enough for our salvation. And that's why this last sola, Christ alone, is so central and was so central and crucial for the Reformers and why it still is to this day. But now we're also facing other contemporary challenges uh, to this declaration that Christ alone is our Savior. Not only the sufficiency of Christ is at stake, but probably even more than that today. The, The exclusivity of Christ is at stake. One of the most adamant and consistent contemporary challenges to the Christian faith today is the belief that Christ is against the belief that Christ is the only way to God and the only way to heaven. 
So not only is Christ's sufficiency at stake, but what's at stake is, Christ, is, 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 is that Christ is the exclusive way, the only way to God, that Christ is enough in that he is sufficient and that he is the only way to God. And so we as a church were sent forth by Christ to make that known in the world today, just like the reformers were in their time and day. And so this is what we want to look at this morning. The big idea that we see in this text and what we're going to unpack this morning is this, because Jesus is our sole and sufficient Savior, we are sent to make him known. Because Jesus is our sole and sufficient Savior, we are sent to make him known. We'll unpack that by looking uh, in in three steps. Uh, Sole Savior, sufficient Savior, and sending Savior. Sole Savior, sufficient Savior, and sending Savior. First, we see that Jesus is the sole Savior. And by sole, we mean S-O-L-E, like the only Savior, not sole, S-O-U. Jesus is the sole Savior. There's no one else that we could rightly call Savior but Christ alone. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Uh, now, we've talked about some controversial things in the last five weeks in the sermon series. Uh, we, we've either briefly walked through or, or talked about at length things like the reality of hell, the, the, the sinful nature of humanity, our total inability to do anything to save ourselves, the, the fact that apart from Christ's redemption, we are satanic and depraved sinners. But now, this may be one of the most controversial beliefs that we hold to uh, in, in our time and place in history. This is sure to be, you know, one of those questions that if a minister of the gospel goes on to Larry King Live or if they're uh, interviewed by the Huffington Post or something, they're sure to be asked uh, about this particular doctrine, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. This is what's often referred to, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And why it's so offensive is, is not hard to figure out. Uh, as Christians, we believe and confess that there is one true God and that there's only one way to know and be accepted by this one true God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that if someone is not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, the, the consequences are terrifyingly brutal. Paul says there is one God. And so it's not as if there are many gods that we're all kind of free to worship whichever God we, we prefer. There is one God who created us and who alone deserves our love and worship and adoration. And it is against this one God that we have sinned and rebelled. And so it is to this one God that we need to be reconciled to. And there's only one person that brings, there's only one mediator that brings this reconciliation and who brings the forgiveness of sins. There's only one way to God, and that is Jesus. He is, he is the exclusive way to God. There's no other way to God. Anyone who knows and worships the one true God, anyone who is accepted by the one true God, only knows, worships, and is accepted by the one true God through Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. No amount of good works or religious activity, no amount of, of, of morality can get you to him, no matter how sincere, no matter how sacrificial, no matter how devoted you are, Jesus is the sole mediator. He is the only one who mediates between God and, between, God and between human beings. The Apostle Peter says the same about Jesus in his sermon in Acts, in Acts 4.12. He says, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by, w- by which men must be saved. In fact, Jesus says the same of himself in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one is reconciled to God. No one has the forgiveness of God. No one has the acceptance of God unless they trust in Jesus Christ. 
Now, last week we talked about the truth that we're saved and justified through faith alone. By simple faith, we're reconciled to God. But as we saw and as we constantly need to be reminded of, faith is by no means the, the basis of our salvation. It's simply the instrument that receives it. It's who our faith is in that truly matters, not the faith itself. Faith in in no one and nothing else saves. Faith in the Quran, faith in a system of salvation, faith in an undefined or distant God does not save. Only faith in Christ saves. Christ alone is the one that saves, and our faith in him is simply the empty hands that receive his gift. There's no other mediator. There's no other priest who brings us into the presence and acceptance of God. There's no, there's no other prophet who reveals God in perfection. There's no other, there's no other king with the uh, authority to save and redeem us. Jesus is the exclusive way to God. He is the exclusive way to heaven. And this is often a hard truth for us to accept, isn't it? It's often seen as, as being arrogant or tribal or snobbish or, or cliquish. You know, just a few short decades ago, if, if you presented the, the truth of the gospel to someone, someone heard the Christian message and they rejected it, it, it likely would have been because they just outright disagreed with it. They just did not believe that it was true. But now, probably more often than not, when people reject the Christian gospel, it's, it's not because they just disagree with it outright. It's because they don't think that it's more or less true or better or worse than any other worldview or religion or way of life. It's more likely now to be seen as just one way among many. And the message is, uh, this message is, is often communicated today in the world. It can be summed up in this really creative and, and well-told story about an elephant. Maybe you've heard this story about the elephant and, and the blind men. Uh, but, but how often uh, people view God and religion and truth is like this. Say there's a really big elephant and several blind men stumble upon this elephant and uh, they, they start feeling around the elephant and trying to describe the elephant to, to one another. And so uh, one man, he has a hold of the elephant's ear. And he says, uh, an elephant is flat and round. It's like a pancake. And then another man has the elephant's leg. And he's feeling the leg. He's, he says, no, it's, it's like a cylinder. It's like a pillar, not like a pancake. And then another man, he has the elephant's tail. And he says, uh, you guys are, are crazy. Uh, an elephant is like a rope. It's not like a, a pancake or a cylinder. It's like a rope. And another man, he has the trunk, and he says, an elephant is not like any of those things. An elephant is like a hose, and they're all blindly feeling around the elephant, trying to describe uh, the particular part of the elephant that they have a hold of, trying to describe what the elephant is like. And they're all partially right, but none of them have the full picture, the full truth about the elephant. And what's being communicated in this story is that there is truth and goodness and beauty in every religion and worldview. All have a piece of the larger pie, but none of them are exclusively true. Atheists, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, Baha'i, and everyone else, they all have part of the truth, but no one can claim to have the true truth, the exclusive truth. No one can claim that they have the only way to God because there are lots of ways to God, and that's often the conviction of those that we interact with, even on a daily basis. And so if you're a Christian, the problem that often arises is is not that you believe the Christian message is true. It's often perfectly acceptable to outsiders if if you believe that the Christian message is true and if you live as a Christian. But the problem that arises is is if the message of Christianity is something that you believe everyone needs to believe in in order to be saved. If our God is the one true God and Jesus Christ is the only way to him, that's, that's often a problem for those outside 
of the faith. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here, and that's exactly what the apostles preach, and that's exactly what Jesus said about himself, and therefore, it is exactly what we must say today. Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and that is actually the message of Christianity. But that's often hard for people to accept. You know, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel, it doesn't seem humble to say that. It feels a lot more humble uh, to say that all religions are equally true and good, at least at first. The, the person telling the story of the elephant seems like the humble one, right? But if you think about it for just a moment, you realize that the only way that someone could share that story is if they've seen the whole elephant and they're watching all the blind men grope around this enormous creature. The one telling the story is claiming to not be among the blind men who all have a partial uh, uh, understanding of the truth. Rather, the one telling the story is telling the story from the perspective of being the person who has the whole truth about the elephant. The one claiming that all worldviews and religions have only a small piece of the pie is claiming that they have the whole pie. The one who looks very humble and saying that no one has the exclusive truth by doing so is claiming to have the exclusive truth. But you know, that story about the elephant is actually not all bad. In fact, I think that that as Christians, it actually illustrates what we believe very, very well. Uh, You see, because as Christians, we do believe that we are, every single one of us, are like the blind men. We're blind men and women worshiping our own thoughts and ideas, and, and we're all blinded by sin and, and worshiping idols and false gods, but, but none of us actually know the one true God. None of us actually have a true understanding of who he is and what he's like. We, we make gods in our own image and worship them, all of us except one, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. He, although we're blind to sin, to who God is, we're blind in, in, in our sin to who God is and his goodness and his glory and his greatness, the eternal son of God steps in and he reveals God to us and he gives us the way to God. Jesus is the one who can see the whole elephant and he reveals the whole truth about the elephant to us. He truly knows God and fully knows God and he reveals to God to us in perfection. What I'm saying is that Jesus is not only the sole Savior, he is also the sufficient Savior. I understand that this can feel somewhat difficult uh, to, to, to understand that Jesus is the only and exclusive Savior. I know that it can often feel snobbish or cliquish or tribal, but it's not. And this is why no one else offers what Jesus offers. No one else is like Jesus. No one else is who he is. No one else has done what he has done. All of us are blind and dead and enslaved and lost in sin. You know, other religions led by blind men and women, just like us, have often uh, offered heaven or paradise or nirvana. They offer systems of salvation. They offer a path to follow. They offer laws to obey. They offer ceremonies to partake in to to lead you into a certain level of deification or or nirvana or, or spiritual ecstasy. But you know, in the gospel, Jesus offers something no one else offers. He offers himself. And he is utterly unique and totally sufficient. There's no one like him. There's no one who has done what he has done. No one else truly knows and understands God. There's no one else who who can share with us what Jesus shares with us. In the gospel, Jesus is is sharing with, uh, with us himself. 
In the gospel, if, if the gospel were about something other than, than, than Jesus sharing himself with us, then of course it could come off as clicky or tribal or snobbish. But he doesn't just give us a path to follow. He doesn't just give us a set of commands to obey. What's more, he brings to us the blessing of his life. He shares with us himself. He gives us God. And that's what Paul is communicating in two words in particular in our text this morning. Look at these two words, mediator and ransom. Again, Paul writes, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So there's no other mediator because there's no one else like Jesus who could fulfill the role. A mediator is, is, is like a go-between. A mediator is someone who mediates a broken relationship and brings reconciliation. And we need a mediator between us and God because we've sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. We've lacked His goodness. We've sinned against Him. We've rebelled against Him. So we cannot be accepted by Him. We cannot know Him. We cannot go to Him. He's too holy, too good, too righteous for us to be in His presence. And Job speaks of this in Job 9, 32 to 35. It's almost like a lament. Job complains, God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take away his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak up without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. He was longing, he was seeing his, what, what lacked in him, and he was longing for a go-between, for an arbiter, for a mediator. But now that arbiter that, that Job was longing for has come to us in Jesus Christ. He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. And because he is fully God and fully man, he, he fully bridges the gap and reconciles the broken relationship between God and man. He is fully God, therefore he fully meets God's standards. And he is fully man, therefore he fully meets our needs. And the reason that he and he alone is our mediator is because he is utterly unique and sufficient for this role. He alone is fully divine and fully man. No one else can be uh, the, the, the way to God because no one else can be what Jesus is for us. Not Mary, not saints, not angels, not Mohammed, not, not your favorite podcast preacher, not any priest or guru. He alone is our mediator because he alone is sufficient in himself to be such. He alone is able to reconcile God and man because he alone is able to, reconcile, to, to represent both parties. As the second person of the Trinity, he is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he brings God to us. And as a, a member of the human race, he is able to make us one with himself in order to bring us to God. And then not only that, he alone can pay our ransom. Here, Paul speaks not just of, of who Christ is and his uniqueness and sufficiency, but also of what he's done in his work on the cross. On the cross in his death, Jesus gave himself as our, the word is, ransom. As the mediator, as the God-man, he died for our sins in our place. This term ransom is a word that, that means someone being released from slavery or prison by the payment of a price. This is what Jesus did when he died on the cross, he was making an exchange for sin. He was dying to pay the price uh, of the justice of God. He was dying to satisfy God's divine justice and wrath. And he was dying to satisfy only what he could satisfy. He could only pay this price because of who he is as our mediator. He had to be God and he had to be man to pay this price. 
uh, Anselm of Canterbury probably put it best saying, salvation could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both God and man. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that man who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. Jesus alone is the mediator between God and men because he alone is who he is and he alone did what he did. In dying, Christ paid the price that we alone paid but that God alone could pay. And in paying it, he paid it all. He is the only remedy for the plight of our human condition. But, but listen, he's also the only remedy that we need. He's all the remedy that we need. We're separated from God. But because he is fully God and fully man, he is able to reconcile us. We have no righteousness of our own, but in his ransom, he shares with us the righteousness of God. We're dead in trespasses and sins, but he gives us resurrection life. God's justice demands that our sins be punished, but he pays our ransom on the cross with his suffering and death. We're unacceptable and ashamed, but he shares with us his own sonship before the Father so that we're accepted and loved, and accepted and loved in the same way that he is accepted and loved by the Father. No one else can provide this. No one else can provide what he provides. And so we shouldn't be shocked that God has provided only one way to be saved. Rather, we should be amazed and enormously grateful that he has provided this way and that in doing so, he has done it all. But there's nothing left for us to add. Because of who he is and what he's done, there's nothing left for us to do but simply receive Christ's wonderful gift of forgiveness, of justification, of eternal life. What else would we need besides him? What else, what could we add to him? We can't add anything to him. As John Calvin once said, our whole salvation and all of its parts are found in Christ. We should therefore take care not to look for it anywhere else. Rich supply of every kind of good abounds in him. Let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. He is infinite in goodness and righteousness and grace and beauty and perfection. And because of this, Jesus is all we have, but he's all we need. He's all we need. You can bank on him to reconcile you to God. You can be sure of him this morning. Christ straight, without your works, without your goodness, without your helping him, raises you from spiritual death and covers you in his righteousness and shares his sonship with you and gives you a seat at his table. He welcomes you into the, pres into the presence of God, not to be judged, but to be loved and delighted in as a son or daughter. He is sufficient, and because he's sufficient, no one else can give what he gives. So then, as we close, how should we live because of all of this? Because Jesus is our sole Savior and our sufficient Savior, because he is the one mediator between God and men, the exclusive way, the only way, the sufficient way, how should we live? Well, Paul doesn't treat the fact that Jesus was sent as our mediator and that he is our only mediator as, as, as cause for complaint, but rather as an expression of the grace of God. 
In verse 4, we see that God sent Jesus to be our mediator because he is, because he, listen, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is in the business of redemption and salvation. He wants people to know him and to be reconciled to him and to enjoy him. And because of this, he sent Jesus to be our mediator and ransom. And also because of this, Paul says that, that because God desires all people to be saved, that we are called to live as people who are sent. We're called to live as those who want people to be saved. We live as people who invite all, no matter the neighborhood or the nation you come from, to, 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 to come and enjoy the sufficiency of Jesus and the welcome of God. No matter the the language you speak, no matter the color of your skin, no matter the the place you call home, no matter whether you're Jew or Gentile or black or white or rich or poor, God invites you to trust in him and to trust in his son. God is redeeming for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so we're called to live as people who are sent into the world to bear witness to that fact. And now if you're here this morning and, and, and you're not a Christian, you could be thinking, See, this is what's wrong with this exclusivity thing. This is what's wrong with Christians and all religions who think that their way is the only way. They end up forcing their beliefs on others. At worst, it causes violence and war and conflict. But you know what's interesting is that is the complete opposite of the type of life that Paul commends to us in light of the truth that Jesus is the only way to God. Rather than living a life of violence and conflict, Paul says that Christians are those who are sent to pray for all people, and and sent to live peaceful and quiet lives. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and this is so because God desires all people to be saved, and because God desires all people to be saved, we should live as prayerful and peaceful people. So before we're sent out, let's look at verses 1 to 2 really quickly to see how we are sent to live. First, we're sent to be a prayerful people. Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people and for kings and for all who are in high positions. Paul is calling the people of God to be a people who pray. And here, Paul is not just calling for a general kind of prayer. He's calling for the people of God to be people of evangelistic prayer. He's calling us to be people who pray for for the salvation of our lost friends and loved ones and neighbors and co-workers. He's calling us to be a people who pray for our neighbors and neighborhoods. He's calling us to be a people who pray for the fruitfulness of the gospel in our city and state and nation. He's calling us to be a people who pray for the fruit of the gospel in the whole world. That that unreached people groups would be reached and that nations would be discipled because Christ alone is mediator. We are called to be a prayerful people. And I'll just simply ask you, if all of your prayers were answered this morning, would there be anyone who was saved? Would there be any unreached people groups reached? Any lives changed in our neighborhood and in our city? If not, why not? Please start. So often we stand and we wait for the Holy Spirit to, to bless our gospel labors while he's waiting for his people to pray. He's waiting for us. He's standing, waiting for us to to be a people who pray. My friends, we cannot accept, we cannot expect any sort of great fruitfulness in our little church plant unless we are people on our knees asking God to give it to us. This is why we, we have the pastoral prayer as a part of our liturgy. 
This is why we pray for the lost in our city. This is why we gather on Tuesday mornings for, for prayer together, to call on God, to act and bring about fruit in our midst. And let me encourage you, avail yourselves of these opportunities. Be a people who pray, evangelistic praise. Be, be, be a people who pray for the lost to come to know God because he desires all people to be saved. Take hold of God's blessing by be, being a prayerful people. Secondly, we're sent to be a peaceful people. Paul says that we're sent to pray to the end that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Like the captives in, in Babylon in Jeremiah 29.7 were to pray and live in such a way that we add to the peace and prosperity of our city and nation. Christians are to live peaceful and quiet lives, lives that are godly and dignifying, not being needlessly disruptive, not, being, uh, not lives of, of conflict, not being argumentative, not uh, vying for political power in the public square, climbing the ladder, stepping on anyone who gets in our way. In our places of employment, we should be agents of peace. We should be those who submit to our bosses uh, in, in, in a respectful and dignified way. We're to be those who don't gossip or slander. When we're slandered, we're to forgive and, and, and pray for those who slander us. We're not to step on our coworkers to get ahead. We're not to be loud and contentious with our neighbors. We're to be a people who work for the good and peace and flourishing of our neighborhood. As much as it depends on us, we're to live at peace with all people that we come in contact with and that we know. We're to seek to please others, even counting others as more significant than ourselves. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, we're to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. But that assumes that you're conducting yourself as someone who has that hope. That, that assumes that it's evident in your life, in your speech, in your deeds, that you have hope. Do we live as people of peace and that have this hope within? Do we live peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives in such a way that attracts outsiders? Do others want to know about the hope we have in our mediator and ransom? And even when we share truths that can be somewhat offensive, like, like the uh, exclusivity of Jesus, things that offend others, we're to do so in a way that's gentle and kind while also being clear and direct. In other words, we're to live as those who desire all people to be saved. And we're to live in this way because God is a God who desires all people to be saved. And he proved it by sending his own son to be our mediator and ransom. He sent his own son to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserve to die. And in doing so, he paid for all of our sins. He satisfied his own justice and wrath so that all we sinners could be called sons and daughters. And all of this comes to us in Christ and in Christ alone. And now as we conclude this sermon series, recognize that, that Jesus, Christ alone, is the center and sum of all that we've talked about so far. As we saw when we looked at Scripture alone, He is the one that Scripture reveals to us. Jesus said in John, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you, you find eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Scripture reveals Jesus and also, when we looked at, at the glory of God alone, we saw that Jesus, he is the one who reveals to us the glory of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown us his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We saw when we looked at grace alone, grace is, 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 is found in Jesus alone. There's not something 
called grace. Grace is not God's warm wishes toward us. This is divine love and saving action coming to those who don't deserve it in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fountain of God's grace come to us. And as we saw when we looked at faith alone, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the object of our faith. He is the center, the sum, the linchpin in all of this. He is not one topic among many for us. He cannot be sidestepped or replaced. He is the one that we believe and trust and submit to. He alone is our sole and sufficient Savior. And in a few moments, we're going to be sent to witness to this fact by being a people of prayer and peace. But before we do that, let's take a few moments to pray and to meet with him at his table. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for sending your son to be our mediator and to be our ransom. Lord, would you help us to be a people who who don't wonder why there's only one way, to be, but, but to be a people who are so thankful that there is this way, And that in creating this way, you have done it all. In redeeming us, you have done it all. In saving us, you have done it all. In ransoming us, you have done it all in Christ Jesus. And so would you help us to look to him, to trust him, to rest in him this morning. And would you help us from that place of rest to be a people who are sent, to be a people of prayer and a people of peace. Because we know that blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Would you help us to be peacemakers? Would you help us to be people who are on our knees begging you for fruitfulness in in the great commission work that you've called us and your people to? Lord, would you help us as we go to not just be hearers of the word only, but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen.